0: This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode, episode 45 in fact, of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr Mick Pope. In this episode, I want to talk about wildlife documentaries We are attracted to beauty, such as the butterfly emerging from the chrysalis. We see love and care in the mutual grooming in a chimpanzee troop, or the beak kissing of a breeding pair of wandering albatross after over a year's absence from one another. These are just some things that evoke in us a sense of the aesthetic or of empathy. But what do we do with things in nature which are not all things bright and beautiful, as the hymn goes? Consider the wildebeest that is being ripped apart by the lion or the wasp that places live caterpillars in with its larvae. What about the things that could be described as nature red in tooth and claw? Do we turn away in horror or look on in fascination? Are we disgusted or delighted, entertained or edified? In 2001, Alan Jacobs wrote an essay, In On The Kill, in his book A Visit to Vanity Fair, Moral Essays on the Present Age, his central thesis is that violence, or the violence of animal predation that features in so many wildlife documentaries, is wholly unsuitable for viewing, and that the enjoyment of such scenes is morally depraved. In this episode, I attempt to formalise Jacob's concerns, which I call the predation problem. Now, it's often customary to consider the effects of, quote-unquote, the fall on the non-human world. Given that I accept the facts of evolution and for the constraints of time, I will not address that version of the problem, which I included in a a paper I wrote some years ago for Zadok Perspectives. I'll limit myself to two others. Now, one version of the argument I call the violence predation problem, and it may be stated as a syllogism as the following. A. Premise A. Animal predation is a form of natural violence. Premise B. Christians are almost always forbidden involvement in violence. Or You might read that as always. Premise C. Passive viewing of violence for pleasure or enjoyment is participation in that violence. Premise D. The only reason one might view animal predation is for enjoyment or pleasure in the act of predation per se. Conclusion Viewing animal predation is sinful. Now, premise A is unarguable. Animals rarely die peacefully in their sleep in the wild. Teeth, horns, venom and claws cause violent death so that other animals may eat to survive. We can identify predation as natural, by which I mean it is part of the way things are. Theologically, what God permits or allows. The teachings of Jesus also show us that premise B is true, that we're almost always forbidden uh, to participate in violence. John Milbank argues that the wealthy middle class today have become primarily onlookers and not participants in violence. In this he includes violence in the natural world. Looking at violence is more violent than participation in violence when we observe it in an attached manner. After all, Part of the attraction, or so so Milbach claims, is that we cannot intervene and therefore must be passive. We become voyeurs of violence, who can do nothing else but sit back and enjoy the theatre of death, the artificial creation of a scene of horror, a, quote, spectacle of termination, as a, quote, recreational relaxation. It is an artificial creation because it shows not simply nature as it is, but as someone has chosen to show it, and as we have chosen to view it. There are some issues with applying this to the violence predation problem, that is, by using it to argue for the truth of premise C, which, if you remember, is passive viewing of violence for pleasure or enjoyment as participation in violence. We must ask, or we might ask, what would happen if we did intervene in animal violence, as we might in human violence? In such a case... One animal would live, momentarily at least, but another would starve and potentially die. The natural economy would be disrupted. Take for example the old series from the BBC, Big Cat Diary. This series is something of a Savannah soap opera, following the fates of various large feline predators. It was very clear that when an animal failed to kill, that she and her cubs were one step closer to death. The drama of this was used to good effect, and while one might uh, felt sadness at the death of a herbivore, it was not hard to be excited when a kill was made. The cuteness of a cub had to be held uh, together both with how its life-saving meal was obtained and the future of the cub, that it might too grow up to perform such deeds. Would it have made sense for the filmmaker to warn the herd each time? Uh, this does not deal with the issue of whether we should be forcing ourselves to view this aspect of the natural economy, but it does force us to recognise that this is indeed part of the natural economy. In one sense, conservation represents interference in the natural economy by restricting predation, or it can do. And this is a worthy topic of the camera lens for concerned Christians to view, I think. However, in many cases, Conservation efforts are interfering in the violence we have helped create by limiting populations directly through hunting and hence making species more vulnerable to extinction through the natural economy, or by introducing predators that do not belong. Uh, Intervention is largely out of the question and viewing of predation is a passive act. Next. Consider Jacob's analogy between predation and bear-baiting. This argument rests on equating the watching of predation, which is for survival, not the watching, the predation itself, with the deliberate creation of a situation of violence for the purposes of our being entertained by that violence. Now, I don't think this is a valid comparison. One is part of the natural economy, as I've stressed, and is for animal survival. The other, for human entertainment, by the act of violence per se, and any economic gain that is gambling that is to be had from the spectacle. One has an appropriate setting, while the other does not. This comparison forces us to address the form in which Jacob casts the argument, to quote, If we look upon such scenes with pleasure and fascination, something is dreadfully wrong. Those who look without flinching upon animals having the flesh of their bellies eaten while they are still alive are morally numb. Those who seek out such scenes for their viewing enjoyment are depraved. Strong stuff. I would want to agree with this, but does it necessarily follow that the violence violence predation argument succeeds? I want to suggest in a weak form, not a strong form. That is, that we may sin, not that it always will be sin. Jacobs wants to know why we might force ourselves to watch such things. I will address reasons in a moment, but entertainment and pleasure per se are not the only reasons. In other words, I argue that premise D is not true. Uh, Reminder, that's that um, the only reason one might view animal predation is for enjoyment or pleasure in the act per se. And therefore, I don't think his argument stacks up. A second version of the predation problem, as I'm I'm structuring it, is the moral predation problem, which we might state again as a syllogism, with the following three premises and conclusion. Premise A. Animals suffer when they are predated upon. Premise B. All suffering is to be pitied and not to be a source of pleasure. To take pleasure in suffering is a morally deficient or sinful act. Premise C. The only reason one might view animal predation is for enjoyment or pleasure in the act of predation. Conclusion: Viewing animal predation is morally wrong or sinful Now this version of the argument includes the statement morally wrong as well as sinful as this argument can be made from a non-theistic or religious point of view. Without pity, taking positive delight in scenes of animal carnage we show ourselves to be morally deficient. Now, people who abuse animals as children do not usually grow up to be good citizens. Often, they grow up to be violent towards other people. As Raymond Gator, an Australian philosopher, suggests in his book The Philosopher's Dog, we know that some animals are conscious and can suffer suffer some things like we do, quite apart from the kinds of experiments that could prove they are conscious. So it's not a laboratory thing, it's, um, it's an experiential thing. Indeed, such experiments can be accused of containing anthropomorphic views of animals, and yet it is almost impossible to not to do so, to commit the sin of anthropomorphism. Now consider our experience with dogs, for example. Human beings and dogs have been together for, oh, it's been a while since I've read the literature, but when I wrote this 14,000 years, And at least they are the most socialized animals we know, or humanized, if you will, or socialized to our our human societies. Don't we ascribe feelings to them? Don't many treat their dogs as if they would a child? And if you spend a fair amount of time on the internet, you'll see um, a lot of time devoted to photos of dogs and jargon around dogs. or doggos, as they're referred to, and so on. So, human beings invest a lot of time and effort and energy into their dogs. In um, The Philosopher's Dog, Raymond Gator accounts or describes his father burying their family dog all off so tenderly. And all of this is because dogs participate in our lives and lay claim to our loyalty and affection, almost as if they were human. It would be ironic if the evolution of human consciousness was so that we might enter the minds of our prey in order to hunt them. And this is a, not an uncommon theory, that we developed a theory of mind in order to get into the minds, not of, just of each other, in co- co- cooperation and collaboration, but also in the minds of our prey. And then deny the very thing uh, that we have in our in a common sense way, ascribed to them. That is, a mind. So in other words, to make what I've just said clearer, if it's true that our intelligence, our minds, our consciousness developed to construct a theory of mind of our prey, then to deny the fact that they have a mind and consciousness would be quite contrary. Um, And I've written a sentence I wouldn't speak anymore. I've written This is not to elevate beast to man or lower man to beast. That's so archaic. Funny how you change over time. It doesn't mean that we completely level the playing field as if we're precisely the same as non-human creatures um, in any way, shape or form, although we clearly share many capacities. So the image of God in humanity is not a matter merely of our cognitive skill or of our emotional capacity, as if such things did not exist in other animals. And it's very clear that they do It's more a case of uh, a quantity in human beings than, or quality rather, than than, uh, quantity or the various aspects is how they come together. My point is that a callous disregard for some animals typically leads to a callous disregard for our fellow humans because of the innate assumption that animals too, to some greater or lesser degree, are knowers and feelers. It should be noted this is a form of the slippery slope argument. A slippery slope argument is um, one where it is assumed that the acceptance of a contingent premise leads inexorably to a worse situation. So, for example, I asserted that violence towards animals early in life leads to violence towards other humans later in life. But this only follows due to innate sense that animals feel and suffer. If I held the view that animals were mere automata, it might not be the case that mistreating animals would imply that I would mistreat humans. Or perhaps I have a pathological condition where I'm compelled to kick cats. I don't. I don't mind cats. I certainly wouldn't kick them. Does this follow that I kick dogs or other people? So we must be aware of slippery slope arguments in discussions of ethics. However, I think it's fair to claim, given the innate knowledge we do have, that there is a strong correlation between violence towards animals and a similar disregard for some humans. Which might uh, feed right into Jacob's argument And we'll continue that discussion in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back to the program. We're thinking about animal violence and whether or not it's a suitable topic for for viewing, particularly for Christians in, in documentaries. So would apathy towards animal violence in documentaries be similar evidence of moral deficiency that we might see in the way we might mistreat other animals, domestic animals, for example, or other humans? The moral predation problem, as I've structured it, stands only upon the success or failure of the assumption that the only reason for, quote, forcing ourselves to view predation is the pleasure we take from the act of violence per se, whether this be the violence that excites or indeed relieves us. Now, in the, thank God, it it is uh, that animal and not me in those jaws. If there are reasons other than entertainment and pleasure for viewing predation, then the moral predation problem version of the argument takes on a softer form that is we replace a definite result with a possible result that the viewing of predation is morally dubious when the reason for doing so is entertainment and pleasure in the act of predation itself conversely it is not morally deficient or sinful when there is some other sufficient justifying reason to view predation i will consider shortly what might be a sufficient reason At this point it is worth considering what limits we might place on such arguments. Do I feel the same pity for my dog when he suffers from arthritis, uh, as I do the wildebeest when it is having its intestines eaten? Yes, and more so. What about the paralysed insect that feeds the wasp larvae? Can I watch that without pity? The insect is paralysed, it has no central nervous system and it feels no pain, nor has any consciousness of death, as far as we are aware. At what level is it acceptable to watch animal predation? What creatures are simply uh, are simple enough for me not to have empathy with them? Now, One might counter that this is not the point at all. This is the boy pulling the wings off the fly argument. In one sense the subject and object of the violence are irrelevant. We must not take pleasure at violence at all. At another level, it is important to recognise that the revulsion we feel is affected by our acute factor, the way we empathise with some creatures and not others. We must be aware of this, not necessarily so that our empathy extends the wall, but that we recognise the emotional as well as the cognitive aspects of our revulsion. I would want to draw a line somewhere so that I do not unduly condemn myself. Uh, for siding with the zebra whose tail swishes away the fly instead of siding with the fly. That's complicated, isn't it? We return to the issue. Um, therefore, can there be reasons other than entertainment and pleasure in the violence? I examine this by considering what Alan Jacobs calls the, quote, the spirit of the documentarian. Now, he builds a straw man documentarian a camera person who focuses on death and destruction from multiple angles, freeze frame and slow motion. One might say that they, quote, dissect the dissection for all it is worth. While this may describe the mechanics and the attitude of some filmmakers, I think it's a poor character of many. Now, Jacob's point is well made when he says that portrayals of predation are not merely showing us how things really are. Even though predation occupies a large amount of a carnivore's time, successful kills do not. They often fail. The carnivore sleeps and defecates as well. And I'll talk more about that shortly. Documentaries that focus mostly, if not entirely, on the killing. So there's, um, I don't know if it's still running, it's fairly old, a Discovery Channel documentary built for the kill and they show us a highly edited and packaged version of nature. And it's probably true that it drives ratings, or it's ratings-driven. People have a fascination with violence that can lead to an overemphasis on such acts. It can be a perverse form of pleasure. In this case, soft forms of the predation problem hold very well. The continued watching of said documentaries will ensure that they continue to be made. However, does this reflect the spirit of the documentarian in all cases? What is such a spirit? Now, I raise this because it reflects upon the question of what sort of documentaries we think should be made, and if we share in such a spirit, it also affects the answers to the question of what documentaries we should watch. Consider the act of predation. What is involved and what is there to attract us, that is, what sufficient justifying reasons could we possibly have for observing it? Well, we might marvel at the efficiency of the act, the design, quote-unquote, of the tools, that is, claws, jaws, and so on. We might be amazed at how such things have arisen. The non-theist will wonder in a manner that the Christian will claim does not honour the God that made uh, all these things, either directly or indirectly. And there is a point to this. However, if the documentarian has these things in view, then Jacob's critique is unfair. What is more, to share such a view, particularly a Christian one, that takes um, God's provision of the predator seriously, so Psalm 104 explicitly says that lions roar and seek their prey from God, then the predation problem is defeated. There's a lot to unpack in that, in, in terms of, well, what does it mean for God to be providing? Uh, pray for a predator in terms of we how, how we think about a problem of evil really of natural evil but uh, I'm currently trying to finish off a book I was going to review for tonight but have run out of time by Thomas Ord and I promise that for the next program that's the book Open and Relational Theology so here's a plug in advance that I'm going to be um, talking about that next next program. Um, However, we should take seriously that an attitude of wonder is not enough. We may wonder at the issue of theodicy, but we must wonder in humility. Humility teaches us that God feeds all creatures, and who are we to question how? We may wonder at the variety of ways in which God does this, that is, the variety of ways in which animals feed, both carnivorous and otherwise. God created us to wonder at his creation. Even um, the non-Christian documentarian fulfills something of the image of God when they wonder at it. It's a fundamental aspect of what it means to be human, I think. And I shouldn't say even. They do it. It may be a long way from the revelation of the creation of God's divine acts, as stated in Romans 1, but it is something of, of what Paul illustrates in Acts 17, that we're created that we might reach out and find God and perhaps part of the, this theory of biophilia that um, biologist E.R. Wilson speaks of is part of our quest for God, that love of the, the non-human uh, creation or nature. This might explain why so many idols in the ancient world are in the form of animals. Who knows? Likewise we need to acknowledge that natural theology is far from straightforward as a field of endeavour. It is not straightforward to move from the created order to knowledge of God. The psalmist may well declare that the heavens are declaring the glory of God, but what does the suffering and death of animals declare? Well, that God feeds some animals with others. Then what? Notwithstanding these difficulties, as Michael Ruse states in his book, Can a Darwinian Be a Christian? God shows us that God understands suffering, both animal and human, by Jesus' death and suffering. It is therefore, the centrality of the canotic or self emptying incarnation, the death and the sign of the resurrection that helps us to make sense of or at the very least accept what we see in animal predation, a lot to unpack in that the god of the Bible is not the abstract god of analytical philosophers, and I've tried i've dabbled a little bit of that with building syllogisms here, neither the untouchable and unmoved god of some theists I might add some Christians. But the self-sacrificing God of the cross. In the life of Jesus, God enters a world of suffering so that suffering might be made sense of and dealt with. Wonder may also be an act of praise if it is accompanied by awe. However, Jacobs is correct in asserting that wonder is not enough. We must express pity and empathy. To cast the documentarian as one who was incapable of this or its cognates horror and revulsion at the violence of some acts is also fallacious. Those who filmed the whale calf being killed in the very first episode of the series The Blue Planet, narrated by David Attenborough, were not unmoved by what they saw. No doubt Sir David himself felt pity for the col- colobus monkey uh, that was ripped apart by a troop of chimpanzees as seen in Life on Earth. However, he is right to point out from a materialist or creation evolution standpoint, or whatever jargon you wish to describe it with, that the cooperation shown in that act of the chimps killing the um, colobus monkey demonstrated how the human ability to cooperate in peace, as much as in war, arose in our evolutionary history. Documentarians are capable of the sorts of feelings that Jacob requires that is, pity and wonder. And a view of animal violence and a valuing of its role does not exclude a fear that in looking at it we might become complacent. There is no definite link between what we see in animals and what we value or despise in human nature. A view of animal predation does not necessarily imply a love of violence or a disposition towards it. So, why then view violence? Well, we may seek to understand our own animal nature. And for the Christian, seek to transcend it by the grace of God. We need to come to terms with the fact that nature is red in tooth and claw, though it is much more than that. That's for another, another, multiple episodes. In fact, there is also perhaps the potential cathartic experience of seeing violence face to face, of being moved to pity by, uh, moved to pity all living things in their struggle, and to thank God who gives the breath of life to all living creatures for this precious gift. It becomes a matter of wisdom more than morality for the Christian. Will I be offended by the violence of predation? Will I be edified in some way? If I take pleasure in the act per se, am I devoid of wonder or pity, or indeed fear? Then I fail morally and fall into sin. If not, I don't. It will require wisdom in each case that decide when to turn away out of respect for the creature who suffers and the God. Who made it? So you know, as an essay, I didn't think it was a particularly strong argument, but th- there were points worth raising. So what can we watch apart from well done or well crafted or well contextualized predation? Well, Alan Jacobs remarks, possibly tongue in cheek, that sleep and defecation are also part of animal existence. Yet these are not popular aspects of documentaries. Well. The rejoinder to that is that it's simply not true, it's just going to depend upon who you watch. I've seen snoring hummingbirds filmed. Likewise, the hibernation of bears and all the required behaviour of eating, both animal and vegetable, are shown in Attenborough's Life of Mammals. Defecation is a theme that runs through several documentaries that I've enjoyed. David Attenborough has covered the toilet habits of Indian rhinoceros and African elephants, to demonstrate the fact that without both species and their fertilizing, um, fertilizing act, species of plants would go extinct because, say for example, um, I know in the African elephant example, a seed that lands on the ground from the acacia will die uh, because it gets attacked by ants, but it gets um, basically um, disinfected by going through a, an elephant's stomach. So the two are quite related. Um, And who can forget, if you've seen it in The Private Life of Plants, the dance of the uh, mistletoe bird as it deals with the mistletoe tree's sticky seeds attached to its behind. It's it's quite a sight to see. My point is, as worshippers of the Creator, particularly in a time when our own sinfulness, and particularly in the West, is leading to a sixth mass extinction. Particularly at this time, we should ponder creation as much as we can in all its complexity, in all its savagery, and in all its beauty. Surely now is the time to learn to love creation for all that it is and work obediently with God to save it. So hopefully that was was interesting. I hope I've inspired you to go and um, hit Netflix or iView view or whatever it is that you view and grab a good wildlife documentary and let it wash all over you. So once more, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.